0: Different Modernities by Adam Caruso from Superposition Hardcore Home. I think it's from 2020. (laughs) Hannes (laughs) Meyer and Hans Witwer's Bundeschule der Allgeme... Bundeschule des... Allgemeinen Deutschen Gewerkschaftbundse, from now on will be known as ADGB Trade Union School, completed in 1930 in Banal de Berlin, is included in many histories of modern architecture. If illustrated, it is with its emblematic floor plan and grainy black and white photograph, usually printed so small that one doubts whether the complex was ever built, and if it was, that it was certainly destroyed in the Second World War. The economy of its presentation encourages the received story that this was the second largest architectural commission undertaken by the Bauhaus, and not the most important one. The first and most important was, of course, the Dessau Bauhaus buildings themselves, completed by Walter Gropius and Adolf Meyer in 1926, central and iconic in the story of modern architecture. Although being first is always a big advantage, the relative prominence of these two buildings and their architects tells an interesting story about the content and the communication of interwar modernism. I have never thought very much about the ADGB school, probably because of those tiny illustrations and a more general ennui about the Bauhaus. Nevertheless, driving north out of Berlin on the Bundesautobahn 11, we passed one of those signs indicating points of special interest. This one for the Bauhaus Deckmal Bundeschule Bernau. The terrible drawing on the sign looked a bit like the Maya building, so we pulled off the motorway to explore. Ten minutes later, we were standing within a project that was exactly like the concept conveyed by the plan, but was also a real place made of materials and spaces. What was a shock was how perfectly preserved the complex was. Continuously used during the period of the DDR as a trade union training centre, it was carefully restored in 2007 and made a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2017. Today it is used as student residence for the Handwerkskammer Berlin. For a building principally known as the paradigm for extreme form of functionalism designed by a famously dogmatic architect, the ADGB school is surprisingly complex and responsive. The ensemble has a material diversity and a specific and almost awkward formalism that follows the site's topography. The articulation of the functional program seems to be a device to control the scale of a large institution, to create a relevant range of interiors and also to better integrate the buildings into their site. The pragmatic use of brickwork for the cross-wall structure and facades of the housing, the delicate steel and glass assembly of the shared corridor that follows the slope of the site, the gently nudging residents downhill, and the expressive frame and more ambitious spans of the gymnasium and hall, this diversity is certainly the manifestation of a kind of functionalism, but also suggests a settlement, a place that gives expression to a community's common purpose at the same time as allowing its members to withdraw into their own private realm. One does not feel so much rhetorical intent in the arrangement of the buildings or in the techniques used in their construction. Rather, one is reminded of the more expressive modernism of Hugo Haring and Hans Sherun, an architecture enmeshed in the details of life much more than abstraction and grand gestures. Modernism was the first cultural movement that gave expression and dignity to the desires of the many, not just to an elite. If everyday life is often fragile, could the delicate responsiveness of modernism be its spatial counterpoint? In Bernal, Hannes Meyer is attempting to make an architecture that frames contemporary life. When Meyer was dismissed for political reasons from his post at the head of the Bauhaus, he wrote an open letter characterising the Bauhaus as incestuous theories blocking all access to a healthy, life-oriented design. As head of the Bauhaus, I fought the Bauhaus style. A comparison between the two schools, one in Dessau, the other in Bernau, bears this out. The Bauhaus was one of those rare occasions when a radical program provides the impetus for radical formalism. Gropius's design for the school was deliberately rhetorical and its forms and spaces were intended to inspire the school's community as well as matching the innovation of the art and design being produced there. The form of its architecture, so vivid and charismatic in the photos made by Lucia Moholy and Eric Consiamuller, are always in danger of collapsing into a kind of pictorial rhetoric. The factory-like spaces of the studio block and the asymmetrical arrangement of volumes on the site unified by their thin coatings of stucco and plaster are insufficiently rooted in reality and too much like a picture of a factory. The disjunction between the Bauhaus and the society it was a part of finds a parallel in the alienation of the building from its purpose. The more normal program of the ADGB school, embedded in the Weimar Socialist Experiment, is accommodated more modestly and with more resonance within the spatial organisation and material character of the Maya building. It is not surprising that Johnny Ive and Andreas Gursky admire each other's work. Gursky has made some of the most powerful and unsettling images of the appearance of late capitalism, and Ive, until recently head of design at Apple, has been an influential actor in making that world. So connected is the smoothness of Gursky's vision of the world and the seamlessness of the iPhone that the artist agreed to make a rare commissioned work, a portrait of Johnny Ive for the National Portrait Gallery in London. The contemporary gallery at the NPG is a strange place to encounter a Gursky. A criterion for inclusion is the celebrity of the sitter and it seems that the importance of the subject and quality of their artist is no longer as closely aligned as it was in the 19th century. There is also something peculiar in the work itself. Installed on the rear wall of Gallery 32 in the company of Elton John, Princess Diana, Zadie Smith, and Zaha Hadid, the work is smaller than expected and is conventionally framed with a surrounding white card mat, something I've not seen except in the artist's earliest work. The unusual presentation highlights that this is a commission and emphasizes the importance of Johnny Ive. This distorts the relationship the equivalence between subject and object that we expect from a Gursky and from most contemporary art photography. The image and the object are no longer the same thing. The size of Ive within the image underlies this instability. In other words, where Gursky includes the human figure, that figure is always very small, either solitary and overwhelmed by the scale of a mysterious setting or equally small and part of a crowd at a Berlin techno festival, the pit area of a Formula One race or the Engadin Ski Marathon. In this work there is obviously intended to be a relationship between the subject Ive and his setting the Apple Park in Cupertino designed by Foster and Partners and completed in 2018. Is this intended to be like a Gainsbourg and if so is there a stronger narrative imperative than is usual in Gersky's work? Andreas Gursky, Johnny Ive, Norman Foster, one witness and two active participants in building the world of late capitalism. While Gersky remains silent on the subject, Ive and Foster both unquestionably work within a positivist paradigm describing each new project as an improvement of what came before and always striving for perfection. They seem both to believe that the world around us can be understood and that its challenges are solvable. Shifting circumstances like that presented by global warming are confronted with a confidence that they too can be resolved through rational design and new techniques. Although they profess that their methods and working situations are motivated by rationalism and transparency, the main beneficiary of their endeavours is capital in all of its rhetorical opacity. Gursky's portrait all too clearly reveals the impossibility of its subject's position. Glass and metal, in all of their haptic conditions, are both Apple and Foster's materials of choice. Here they are shown to be unrelated to any kind of phenomenological or social clarity or transparency. The Apple Park uses the largest curved glass panels ever produced, along with the most precisely milled aluminium plate. And in Gursky's image, these are shown to produce an environment that is optically confusing to the point of alienation. We cannot tell if Johnny Ive is inside or outside the building, and if he is outside, it's unclear how he's protected from a fall. Strangely, the only interior of the Apple Park on the Foster website shows the very same ambiguous condition. This dissolution between interior and exterior is clearly an important and conscious intention, a conventional modernist emancipatory trope that here becomes a signal of danger. While Foster and Ive would have no truck with postmodernism, Gursky shows that they are complicit in its construction, building its empire in glass, steel, and aluminium. What kind of home does the portrait reveal, and how does the Lord, Johnny Ive, relate to its manner? With its disorienting and distorted surfaces, Gursky's photograph is nothing like the pictures made by Gainsborough. Borough? Gainsborough, I think in that nothing is revealed about its subject or about the social power that he exerts over his domain. More like the house of mirrors in a carnival, Johnny Ive is held captive within the seamless reflective surfaces of his realm. The empire does not fortify its boundaries to push others away, but rather pulls them within its specific order, like a powerful vortex. With the boundaries and differences suppressed or set aside, the empire is a kind of smooth space across which subjectivities glide without substantial resistance or conflict. Michael Hart and Antonio Negri are describing the frightening lack of resistance to capital's consumption of the contemporary world. Their reference to empire comes, as does their argument, from Karl Marx and recognises the 200-year progress of capitalism, a narrative that ensnares Hannes Meyer as it does Gersky, Ive and Foster. Does this mean that modernism is not only simultaneous with but also complicit in capitalism? The ADGB trade union school was was intended as a bulwark or, at least, a moderation against the brutal forces of the free market. But it was closed by the Nazis only three years after its construction, and its second life within the DDR was ended by the re- reunification of Germany in 1990. Gersky's photograph and the world that it shows is less idealistic in that it resists nothing, but it is also more ideological. Its total engagement with the concrete reality of late capitalism is evident in the smooth perfection that fuses photography with architecture. Both demonstrate an absence of physical information, a condition that has been achieved through enormous design effort fueled by infinite budgets, but whose ultimate effect is to render technique, materials, and image unknowable and alienating. An unexpected result of the protagonist's tireless search for Perfection. Despite its ideological failings, Maya's project contains some of the seeds of modernism that could be most productive today. Its spaces come directly out of rather simple functional program, which means that its buildings were able to easily accommodate changing practices over a 90-year life. The surprising and self-evident quality of its material assemblies that combine diverse scales and different degrees of ambition provide hierarchy without referring to any obvious historical references. A meaningful architecture that is also inclusive and democratic, an architecture that facilitates and celebrates the everyday life of ordinary people. So I really like Adam Caruso. I think that the way that he speaks about architecture is probably one of the best ways Um, to me. I think that like when Rem Koolhaas, when he first met Rem Koolhaas at the um, Serpentine Marathon um, series, which is on YouTube, he... Rem said something about how his writings were always moral. Adam's writings were always very moralistic in tone, and obviously, it's true of this essay as well. I think that maybe what he was trying to say did wasn't quite pulled off, um, especially the comparison between the two modernisms of the Bauhaus, um, represented by. Hannes Meyer on the one hand and um, Gropius on the other, that kind of makes sense as a self-contained, um, you know, he, which continues Adam's pursuit in these alternative uh, modernisms like uh, Asnago Venda and Fernand uh, Poulion. But I think the comparison perhaps to um, like Jonathan Ive and um, Foster and Gursky um, for me, doesn't really quite... They're almost like two separate essays. But on the other hand, I do think it's interesting that he mentions this um, Hart and Negri's idea of smoothness, and I think that it's something that could be discussed more in architecture, because I think we are often um, being asked... Uh, smoothness is often, like, part of the brief, that you reduce obstruction... Um, and so you can see how that starts to see architecture's fixity as maybe, like, counter to that um, program. Obviously, someone who's trying to overcome this is um, Pia Vitorelli through, you know, obstruction um, as, a, I guess, counter to smoothness and endless flows. So maybe that's um, the most interesting idea to take up.